So let's pray. Jesus, come and take us on a little trip this morning. Let us be transported to the future for what you have in store for those who abide with you here, where we will abide with you forever. So come and thrill us and fill us with what you have for the future for us, we pray in your name. Amen. We have been focusing on a relationship with Christ. We've looked at the three legs of the stool, the relationship ingredients. Reading the Bible for the purpose of knowing Jesus, not doctrinal accuracy as much or prophetic fulfillment, but knowing Jesus. Secondly, prayer, not just the 911 list of uh, emergency prayers and our prayer list of advising God how to run the universe, but simply communication, two-way communication with God. And then sharing, which instead of being some kind of a contrived attempt at witnessing, simply bubbling over with what God is doing in your life. A natural, exciting witness. It's not about what you do. It's about who you know and who you know will transform what you do. And I encourage you every morning at the close of your time alone with Jesus to ask him, Please open my eyes today to specific opportunities you arrange where I can make a difference in people's lives for you, Jesus, and your kingdom. And give me a nudge when it happens so I don't miss it. I believe if we would sit at Jesus' feet daily and ask him to set up these divine appointments, he would create natural witnessing events through our day. They might interrupt your regular schedule, but that's okay. We interrupt this program for something really important. And that is to share Jesus with somebody. All right. This morning, especially, we talked about the bottom line, the basic level of your walk with Jesus is your personal time with Jesus. But we're not made to do church in a solitary environment. We're called to be together. And so I suggested a second level would be to have these all about Jesus small groups where you get in groups of 10 to 12 and you spend time just letting the Holy Spirit make the, the, the story of Jesus come alive through time of sharing and praying and reading God's word. And then your third level is church here. I don't want to say that coming to church on Sabbath morning is unimportant, but the most important is your time alone with Jesus. I think next would be your time in a small group. And then third level, coming together on Sabbath morning, you will truly be bubbling over in all that Jesus is doing in your life. Not just in ancient history, but that very week. This morning we want to talk about going home. They say you can never go home again. Have you tried? You know, just this week, I drove down to Ithaca, Uh, just because when we lived at Holly, Michigan in my fifth and sixth grade years, 1966 to 68, my parents' good friends were uh, Lowell and Helene Jo Shaleen. He was adopted there in Ithaca for 35 or 40 years. And I remember driving to their house, and so I just, that was a place I wanted to go. So I drove over to Ithaca, and I drove by the, the old clinic and the house, and it was just totally different. I just kind of drove in, looked around, and drove away. It was They changed everything, you know. Nothing's the same. They say you can never go home. I go back to the little house I lived in when I was four, five, and six years old in College Place, Washington. That was a big house. I go back there now, it's about the size of a postage stamp, you know. It's just a little tiny place. And they tore the school down where I went to first grade. You know, it's a vacant lot. What's that all about? A bunch of you folks here in Michigan who went to Adelphian or Cedar Lake, you, the schools don't exist anymore. They've combined them. You, you can't go back. You can't go back. I remember as a little kid, we moved a lot. I went to 12 schools by the time I finished high school. So we moved and moved and moved. But there were a couple of places that were stable. One was my grandma Venden's house. She lived about uh, an hour north of Portland, Oregon, Kelso Longview area. She lived out on the Coweeman River, the last house on the phone line, long past the paved road. But Grandma's house there was this cabin, probably built around the turn of the last century, and uh, it had no plumbing. And then in front of that cabin was another little cabin that was a little bit bigger, and it had running water inside, but you still had to use the outhouse. And Grandma lived there, and she cooked on a wood stove, and... uh, We loved going to Grandma's house. And then in 1964, 
we built grandma a new house and it had indoor plumbing and bathroom and everything and it even had a real stove and she still cooked on the wood stove <laughs> and heated with the wood stove even in that new house many many years later I mean I remember going to grandma's house as a kid I remember driving down the Columbia Gorge from Walla Walla Washington down to Portland that was such a long boring ride that's one of the most beautiful drives you can ever take you know but for me it was long and boring and so dad would put me to sleep on the back shelf of the Plymouth now that would be child abuse these days right but I would sleep on the back shelf of the Plymouth and my sister would sleep on the seat and it was so nice We'd leave early in the morning and sleep all the way, wake up at Grandma's house. All that boring ride was, was gone. We loved going to Grandma's house. Grandma lived there until 1977 when she had a stroke and couldn't live alone anymore, and so my folks sold the property. In the mid-1980s, I called my sister up one day. I says, hey, I'm, I'm up in the Northwest. I'm going to go buy the property. She said, don't go. It will be a bummer. She said, it's a vacant lot. The house we built in 64 burned down. The old cabins have been removed. Literally, Grandma's house is a five-acre vacant lot. Well, I said, I'm going to go anyway, and it was a bummer. It was just a downer all the way to go back to Grandma's home, and there was nothing left. Now, just recently, uh, about a year ago, I held a series of meetings just about an hour from there, so I drove up there again. I guess I'm a glutton for punishment. Somebody's bought it. They put in a home and a barn and a shed that's already getting old. <laughs> They've been there long enough that it's getting old. But it just isn't home anymore. It's not the same. They say you can never go home. And yet God says he's going to take us home. Lift up your eyes to the heavens. Look at the earth beneath. The heavens will vanish like smoke. The earth will wear out like a garment. Its inhabitants die like flies. But my salvation will what? Last forever. How many of you would not be surprised if Jesus came back sometime in the next thousand years? Oh, yeah, yeah. Now that's a no-brainer, right? How many of you would not be surprised if he came back in the next hundred years? I think we're all there. How many of you would not be surprised if he came back in the next ten years? Yeah, we're, we're there. How many would not be surprised if he came back in the next year? That, that's a little, that's getting a little close to home, right? Does it matter when he comes? But as it was in the days of Noah, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and did not know until the flood came and took them all away so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. I find that phrase interesting, did not know. What do you mean they didn't know? Noah preached for 120 years on top of a pile of wood. At least that's if you've read the Bible storybooks, right? He's on the top of a pile of wood preaching to people in this ark in the background. He built a huge boat that had no water to float it. God knows how to get people's attention, right? And during that 120 years, everybody must have heard the message and seen the idiot building the boat. And then the animals came in two by two. That should have gotten somebody's attention that something bigger than life is going on here. And then an angel closed the door. And after all of that, only eight people were willing to go in the ark. The rest were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage. And I've heard preachers preach they were doing these evil things. I don't think eating and drinking is evil. We need more marrying and giving in marriage and less shacking up, don't we? This is not talking about how evil the people were in this case. They weren't ready because of the mundane of daily life. They wouldn't listen that things were going to change. Yes, they were evil back then and God washed out the world. But the point here is it's often just the daily usual mundane things that get our attention and when some changes need to come we're just too busy in our groove and somehow that flood was a surprise even though they've been told about it you go to the uh, ten bridesmaids the kingdom of heaven is like the ten virgins they took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom five were wise five were foolish the foolish took their lamps and no oil the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps and while the bridegroom delayed, they all slumbered and slept. How many slept? 100%. How many of them were Adventists? 
Oh, because they were all looking for the advent, right? The coming of the bridegroom, the second coming of Christ. And at midnight the cry was heard, Behold, the bridegroom is coming, go out to meet him. And they woke up. How many were startled by the shout? All. How many were ready? Half. What's the problem? What's the problem? The day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in them will be burned up. What do you mean? We know the signs of the times. We know Jesus is coming. How is it going to be a surprise? What's with this big surprise thing? If the master of the house had known the hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed the house to be broken into. Have you noticed thieves don't make appointments? They don't call up and say, we're going to be in the neighborhood tonight. We're going to drop by for your stereo and that 4K Ultra HDR Smart LED 72-inch TV. We'll take that off your hands and your watches and jewelry, and we won't forget the cash in your underwear drawer. What time would be convenient for us to drop by? They don't do that. They just show up. You don't know they're coming. It's a surprise, but there's no doubt they have arrived. Jesus told a parable. Whoever hears the sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain descended, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on that house, and it did not fall, it was founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them is like the foolish man who built his house on the sand, and the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. We talk about we must have oil in our lamps, we must build on the right foundation. But I think a more significant point would be today, when the storm hits, it's too late to change foundations. It's too late to buy fire insurance when the house is on fire. It's too late to buy oil when the bridegroom has arrived. If we go through our lives getting by on minimum weekly religious requirement, we're going to come up empty in the end. But if we go through our lives seeking maximum daily relational experience, we can't come up short. Did you get that? Minimum weekly religious requirement versus maximum daily relational experience. You know, relationships don't work by saying, what's the minimum I can do today so she won't leave me? Relationships work by saying, what's the maximum I can do to grow the joy of our relationship together? And this is all about a relationship, not the minimum you can do to get by, to get into heaven, to spit and slide under the gate just as it closes. You'll never make it because it's about a relationship and that always goes for the maximum. So whether Jesus comes in the next thousand years, the next thousand days or the next thousand minutes is really irrelevant because his coming is as close as your last breath. If you're driving along tonight, running out to pick up some groceries somewhere and Suddenly you notice the bright lights of a car and they seem to have come into your lane and they're heading straight towards you and it's too late to move right or left and there's nothing you can do to avoid them and all of a sudden those bright lights are in your eyes and then all of a sudden they're even brighter and you think those are really, really bright lights and you say, whoops, those are not bright lights, that's Jesus coming. That's how long you'll be in the grave. When we die, we know not the passing of time, the moment we breathe our last breath, we breathe our next breath in eternity with Jesus. We think life is a steel cable. It's really a fragile golden thread. Stand in silence in the presence of the sovereign Lord for the awesome day of the Lord's judgment is near. The terrible day of the Lord is near. Swift it comes, a day of bitter tears, a day when even strong men will cry out. Gather together, yes, gather together. Gather before the judgment begins, before your time to repent is blown away like chaff. Act now, seek the Lord. How many of you want to go to heaven when Jesus comes? Okay, all right, I think every hand is raised. Now if I were to ask how many of you are spending daily devotional time in the morning seeking to know Jesus better, I'm not going to ask for your hands. But only a small portion of those hands would go back up in most cases. If I really want, think that I want to live forever, and heaven is really about Jesus, and Jesus is all about heaven, and the two go hand in hand, and it's all about a relationship, I'm fooling myself if I think I want to live with Jesus forever, but I can't even find 15 minutes to spend with him tomorrow morning. 
I am under a delusion. I'm not really interested in Jesus or I would find time for him. And you realize you'll never get to heaven because you're interested in heaven. You'll only get to heaven if you're interested in Jesus. Because it's simply about renewing the relationship of abiding together. Jesus says, look, I'm coming unexpectedly as a thief. Blessed are all who are watching for me. 2,000 years ago, 11 men were watching while Jesus levitated into the sky. While they watched, he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. Can you imagine seeing that? You're talking to Jesus and all of a sudden he's just going up like a, like a helium balloon, you know, just, just going silently, lifting up. And your neck is just craning and you're looking up because he's getting smaller and smaller and then some clouds obscure him and you can't see him, but you're still looking up. And all of a sudden somebody speaks beside you, startles you. Two men stood by them in white apparel saying, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing, staring into the sky, into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. This is our hope, people. You know, sometimes we talk to sinners about their sin. You know what we ought to talk to sinners about? The hope of Jesus. Let the Holy Spirit talk to them about their sins. Let's talk to them about hope. The best way to spend your life is on something that will outlast it. Recognize there's always more going on than meets the eye. There's more to life than three score and ten. There are five times as many scriptures about the second coming of Jesus as about his first coming, and every single prophecy of the first coming was fulfilled. I believe every prophecy of the second coming will be fulfilled as well. We've already recited this verse together this morning, but I want you to recite it again, this time in the VLT, which is the Venden Literal Translation. Now, I did this on purpose so that you will have to think different thoughts because the wording is going to be different. I even have found myself stumbling as the leader over this by shifting into routine gear of something I memorized. So here we go. Let not your heart be troubled. You be trusting God and you be trusting in me. In my Father's house there are many abodes, but if not... I would have told you, because I myself am traveling to prepare a place for you. And if I might travel and I might prepare a place for you, I myself am coming again, and I will take you alongside to myself in order that where I am also you might be. Now all the yous and yours are plural. So he's talking to all the disciples and he's talking to all of us. And I want you to notice, unfortunately, there are no mansions. I apologize for the King James Version. It doesn't say anything about single-family mansions with three-car garages and golden driveways. It says, literally, in my Father's house are many abodes. Now, why do I use an odd word like abode? Because it's simply the noun version for the verb to abide. Abide in me and I in you. Abiders bear much fruit. Abiders get pruned. Abiders will go to the eternal abode. Amen. It's all about abiding now. It'll all be about abiding then. It's all about abiding. And so it's, it's more the picture of the big hacienda where you will have a permanent room in the Father's house. But it's about abiding it's not about mansions. It's about relationship. It's not about stuff. It's about Jesus. Abiding places. Those who abide now will keep right on abiding then. And notice I underlined I and you in the last sentence. In that sentence, usually the pronoun is built into the verb conjugation, and when they add the pronoun separately, it is an emphasis. It is a punch so Jesus ends up saying, in order that where I am, also you will be. It's all about people. It's not about the place. It's not about the mansion. It's about Jesus and you and me abiding together. If we abide now, we'll just slip right on into abiding then. 
Today we want to remind ourselves about that Advent when Jesus comes again. Do we believe Jesus is coming again? If you do, you're an Adventist. And yet, do you ever find it hard to believe it's real? I mean, are we really dumb enough to believe that clouds and sky and angels are going to appear up there coming down? I mean, given our current worldview, that is complete idiocy, isn't it? It's ridiculous. Do we really believe it? Sometimes I think we talk about it so much that it's not very real. But it's going to be the most real thing that ever happened. It's going to make the, the, the benches you're sitting on seem unreal by comparison. So today, I want to just talk through the story. We get it from the Bible. We get some expansion on it from the book Great Controversy by Ellen White. I'm not going to do a proof text on the second coming. Let's just talk it through and look for what's ahead for abiders. Amid the reeling of the earth, the ground rolling like waves of water, every mountain and island being moved, flashes of lightning, the roar of thunder, Jesus will appear. In person, in the sky, this same Jesus, and every eye will see him all at once, all around the world. That's something only the infinite God can do, and Satan can't counterfeit. Jesus makes it clear, if you're alive when Jesus comes, nobody will have to tell you he came. And if somebody tells you Jesus came and you didn't see it, it's not him. And don't worry about the physics. God invented physics. He can bend physics. He can get those light rays right around to the backside of the planet. And the Son of God will be riding forth as a conqueror, leading a royal parade through the heavens. And he will blow a massive silver trumpet, a mighty blast. And he will shout a shout that echoes through the earth. Awake, 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 you who sleep in the dust, and arise. And every sleeping saint will hear the blast of that cosmic alarm clock. They will hear that voice with life-renewing power. Jesus has the power over death. He calls death sleep because he can wake you up from death as easily as you can wake someone up from a nap. He says, I'm the resurrection and the life. He proved it at Lazarus' tomb. He proved it as his own resurrection. He says, I hold the keys of the grave and death. And when Jesus comes and cries out, awake, tombstones are going to be popping off like popcorn. People coming up out of the ground, not ghosts, but glorious. Incredible action down at the cemetery. You know, I like the fact that when I drive by the Midland Cemetery here, it's right near where we uh, have our Airbnb that we're staying, over near the uh, convention center, uh, the art center. I saw this park-like area, and then I noticed there were tombstones there. Every cemetery in Phoenix has a fence around it and times when you can go and come. It's just there. I kind of like that. Saw somebody, drove by a couple days ago, they were burying somebody. There was a casket and the family gathered around. It's sad. But when Jesus comes, it's going to be glorious. And if you want to go where the action is, you go down to the cemetery. Amen? Stuff is going to be happening down there. A number of years ago at a high school, Adventist High School in Oregon, just a couple weeks before graduation, one of the senior girls was killed in an auto accident. And her classmates were devastated. But they... Ask the parents, can we go down to the mortuary and have them open the lid? We want to write our messages with Sharpies on the inside of the casket for her. And the parents thought that was a great idea. So they, they'd fix the girl all up and, and they um, opened both lids, the whole thing, so the kids could write. And one of her friends wrote right above where her eyes will open, if you can read this, you're about to see Jesus. The dead in Christ will rise. They will come forth. They will shout, Death, where is your sting? Grave, where is your victory? That wasn't so bad. It was just a moment. We didn't even know we were in the grave. Remember, death is a problem for the living, not for the dead. And we, the living, will be overjoyed to see and be reunited again with our loved ones. There will be a great and a glad shout of victory. I want to show you where I want to be when that happens. This is a map of uh, Washington and Oregon, the Columbia River Gorge. You see Portland there and a little arrow pointing there. 
That's a spot about 25 miles up the river, north side of the Columbia River from Portland, Vancouver. My dad grew up in the Vancouver area. It's a little place called the Mount Pleasant Grange Cemetery. Right down there in that grove of trees, right there, that's where I want to be when Jesus comes. Because in that grove of trees, it's a closed cemetery now. You can't put bodies there anymore, but we still put ashes there. Little Mount Pleasant Cemetery, established 1887. It's up in the trees right behind that sign. And there is an obelisk with three graves. You will notice there are three pads there. The first one was put there in 1909 when my grandpa's older sister died at age 17. The family didn't know it, but just two years later, her dad would join them. My great-grandpa Nels Venden, uh, who came over from Norway, died in his 40s and was buried in 1911. The first grave was the one on the far right, then grandpa's went in on the far left. And a couple of decades later, great-grandma Christine died, and she was put in the center. They have a carving on the obelisk for the daughter and the father, but they never took the obelisk down to carve the dates and things for great-grandma Christine. So I don't even know when she died and was buried there. And I've known about this little grave plot over the years because it's kind of a sacred family spot. My dad died in 1990 of melanoma cancer. He was 71 years old. And for several years, we had dad's ashes in the closet along with his mother, Grandma Venden's ashes. She died a few years before. And I remember we were actually headed as a family up to a, another family funeral up in College Place, Washington, of another one of the cousins. And I said, hey, on the way we're going by the Grange. I don't know what to do with Dad's ashes. We don't have a home plot anywhere. So we took Dad and Grandma's ashes, and we stopped by, and I dug a hole and buried them right there behind the obelisk. So this is a sacred spot. Then my dad's first cousin, Morris Venden, died, I believe, in 2012. We actually had his memorial service in early 2013. And in later 2013, Lee contacted me and said, I'd like to put dad's ashes at the Grange. He said, I haven't been there. Where is it? So I got out Google Earth and sent him maps and pictures, and he found it. And he put Morris Venden's ashes there, and they're right there between great-grandma and great-grandpa. It was September of 2014. Marilyn and I had been on vacation, or were on vacation. We'd been up to Great Falls, Montana to visit her brother where he's pastoring. And we were driving down the Columbia Gorge. And I don't know what was wrong with me, but I was feeling nostalgic. And when we got to the Bridge of the Gods, I just had to get off the freeway and go over the bridge. And Marilyn said, where are we going? And I said, I need to go by the Grange. Okay. We drove by the Grange, and I went up into the woods there and uh, found the grave. Sometimes it's much more overgrown than this. This is a time when the weeds have been all knocked down. And I could see where that arrow was pointed, that there was fresh dirt, and I knew that was right where my cousin Morris Venden was buried. There's no grave marker for him or my dad or my grandma. They're just there. And I didn't have a good relationship with my own dad, and I never even cried at his death. But I have to admit that I sat down in that place, and I finally had a good cry 25 years after my dad died. My wife was kind enough to say, I'm going to go take pictures somewhere else and leave me alone. And I realized how sacred this ground is. This is a sacred place for us. This is precious. There are precious saints sleeping here. Now, some of those precious saints were downright difficult to live with when they were alive. But they're precious saints. Amen? Amen. They died in Jesus. They died in the hope of the resurrection. And I believe when Jesus comes, those heavy uh, cement covers are not going to be any problem for Jesus. Amen? Those things are just going to pop off and up will come my loved ones. I've told my wife that if I die before Jesus comes, I want my ashes put there. In fact, just recently, about a year ago now, we actually met and you see that little tree just to the right, that little scrubby thing? We actually put Marilyn's dad's 
Well, we put a gravestone there that mentions his name. (laughs) We've lost his ashes. We're not sure where they are. We kind of smile about that. We lost dad. But when we find them, we'll put them there. But we put the marker there for dad. You know, her brother says we have them. We say he has them and none of us can find them. But we also put the ashes there for Marilyn's brother who died a couple of years ago. So this is really sacred ground. And I told my wife if I die before Jesus comes, I want my ashes there. And I told my guardian angel that if I'm still alive when Jesus comes, I know it says the dead in Christ will rise first and then we who are alive. But I want to be transported there first and then let the dead in Christ rise. And then we'll be caught up together. And I'm trusting that the angel will follow my directions. In that resurrection, our old bodies will be transformed, become immortal and incorruptible. And literally, in the Greek there, it means undiable and unspoilable. I'm looking forward to that. I may not be spoiled, but I'm spoiled. There's a lot of spoiled stuff. It'll be gone. Blemishes, deformities, handicaps, disabilities, all gone. No glasses, hearing aids, canes, walkers, wheelchairs, back or knee braces. No more gray hair or bald heads. No more high blood pressure. Everything complete and whole and beautiful and immortal and forever young. We will become undiable and unspoilable. You know, they tell me that on Cape Canaveral, where the Kennedy Space Center is in Florida, when the government bought up that property for the Space Center... There was an old Adventist church on that property, I'm told. And it had some graves around it. And they flattened the church, but they put a fence around the graves. And I can just picture it. Jesus comes and those graves pop off and those dear saints rise. And while they're floating up in the air, they're looking down saying, what are those long tubes sticking up in the air for? We won't need rockets and noise and fuel We'll just rise to be with the Lord. Those who never died will be gathered by the angels. We'll form a large traveling congregation, a traveling party aboard God's special space vehicle. And little children will be carried to their mother's arms. Miscarriages, early deaths, maybe even abortions. God will take those children and give them back to their mothers. I have a cousin She's a second cousin to Lee and to me, another part of the family. And she wanted to have children, several miscarriages, couldn't seem to bring a child to term. Finally, the doctor discovered she was pregnant again and said, if you will go to bed for the last six months, I think maybe we can bring this baby to term. And she quit her job and basically was in bed the last six months. And the baby was born, but it died within the day. And my cousin Morris was at the funeral. He wasn't presiding, but he went to uh, his niece's child's funeral. Little tiny casket. He said the pastor that presided said, I'm going to use a text out of context. He said, I believe at the resurrection the angel's going to come to you and say, unto you a child is born. Unto you a son is given. And you'll get to raise that child in a better land. Families and friends long separated by death will be back together. We will form this incredible entourage on God's space vehicle. Now think about that. God has evidently created a transportation committee of angels. And their job is to transport us all. And if you read Ezekiel, it's like they become living wheels and living wings that are massive and powerful, and amazing. And as those things begin to turn and move, and we begin to move upward, those wheels and wings made of living beings are going to shout, you know, glory, holy, holy, Lord God Almighty. And we're going to join in with hallelujah, and it's going to seem like a dream. It's going to be too good to be true. Clouds of fire and wings and wheels and angels and silver trumpets, it's all real. It will be like the glory of a sunset, but we're in the middle of it. We're told the trip will last about seven days. And we're not going to be saying, are we there yet? Jesus will be the travel guide, and we will go past planets and comets, suns, red giants, stars, white dwarfs, black holes, quasars, pulsars, star clusters, galaxies, and galaxy clusters. 
And our tour guide will actually know what he's talking about when he tells us what's been going on out there. We're told the trip will finally end as this space vehicle docks at the edge of a large flat plane that glows as if it's on fire. A sea like glass and fire. And we'll disembark this huge innumerable number of saints. And as we get off the space vehicle onto this great expanse, Jesus is handing out tokens of victory. Palm branches. I think we'll all get a badge. You know, you have to have a badge to go anywhere, don't you, anymore? I have a badge. I'm surprised we don't have badges to get into church. I have a friend who had a gospel music group that went quite a ways in the gospel music industry and at one point he was at a Nashville music convention he had a badge to get in but there was a ballroom to the side where the top musicians were the big names and you had to have a special badge to get in there and only certain VIPs had that badge and my friend didn't have that badge but somebody came up and handed him one of them Now, it had somebody else's picture and somebody else's name, but it seemed that at the door, they weren't looking fine-tuned whose picture, whose name. They just saw you had the special badge, and in he goes. And he got to visit with all the top-name musicians, knowing if anybody ever walked up and took a good look at that badge, they'd throw him out. We will have a badge that says, we belong. We belong. We'll form a giant hollow square around the edge of that plane and Jesus will be in the center high and lifted up. And I believe he'll look at every one of us individually, personally, all at the same time. He can do that. And he's going to say, I am so delighted you are here. We've been waiting a long time for this and I am especially fond of you. And we'll look at Jesus and we'll notice the scars in his hands his side, and his feet. And we'll look at ourselves and we'll realize there are no scars. The only evidence that sin ever existed for eternity will be the marks on our Savior. I think he's going to start handing out crowns like diplomas at a graduation. He said, we'll get a crown, we'll get a white stone. On that white stone will be a new name. He's going to say, check out this name my father and I have for you. And we're going to look at that and say, wow, that describes me perfectly. How'd you come up with that? He says, I've known you since before you were born. We can come up with a special name for you. And if you ever hear that name called, nobody else knows it. So you'll know it's me or my father calling you. Now, isn't that going to take a long time? I mean, you think of a graduation of 100 students, that takes a long time. We've got an innumerable multitude. And he's going to hand out crowns and white stones. Isn't it going to take a long time? No, because time will be no more. We're not going to care how long it is. No rush, no boredom, just incredible joy. Let the good times roll. Nobody will yell, it's 1230, the preacher should be done by now. When are we going to lunch? You know, down here, no matter how good the time is, somebody finally shouts, Closing time, turn out the lights, the party's over, right? All good things must end. We'll no longer apply. Some of us on this earth are time-oriented clock people. You know, if it starts at 12, it's supposed to start at 12, and it's supposed to get over at 1, it's supposed to get over at 1. How come we're off time? Some of us are event persons. We'll start when we all get here and we'll go as long as we want to and when we're done, we're done. And Usually a marriage has one of each. (laughs) Otherwise we'd be chronically late or chronically uptight. (laughs) Marilyn is my clock person and I'm the event person. Marilyn actually plans a strategy to exit a party. I want to stay till the end. You know, I've never understood people who leave in the middle of the ninth inning or the middle of the fourth quarter. I hope it goes into extra innings and overtime. You know, I love a concert with lots of encores. Let the good times roll. And they're going to go on and on and on, and it's not going to be a problem. Here's the good news, folks. We event people are going to win. 
because there will be time no more. <laughs> we'll get more than names and a crown. We're going to get a new robe, something gorgeous. We're going to get party favors, harps and palm branches to wave in victory. And I think we're going to discover we can play them. And when the music starts, we'll be able to join right in and sing along and play along. And I think maybe the lyrics of the song might be one of these, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever and ever. Amen. And it will be beautiful as our voices echo across the universe. And I hope it's a long song. I also like long songs. On the edge of that plain is a huge city. If you read the book of Revelation chapter 21, it's as high as it is long and wide. If those numbers are literal, it's about the size of the state of Oregon cubed. One thing we do know, it's going to be a perfect fit for the people who go there. And I think that's shown by the numbers. The city's made up with the numbers 144, 12, and thousands. And what are the people made up of? The numbers 12 times 12 times thousands. I think it's a literal place and I think it's a huge place, but I believe the numbers show that God has built it to fit where we who are rebuilt according to His rebuilding will fit perfectly. We will feel at home. Jesus swings the gate open. It's made of a single pearl. What an oyster. And He cries out, Your troubles are over. Come in, you blessed of my Father. This is what has been prepared for you from before the world began. We've been getting this ready for a long, long time. Welcome home for the holidays and wait to see what my dad has done in decoration. I know this is out of context. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. Coming down from who? The Father of Lights. What do we do for the holidays? We string lights. God is going to have lights like we can't imagine. The Father of Lights is getting ready for the great celebration. 2,000 years ago, Jesus prayed, Father, I want those that you gave me to be with me where I am and to see my glory. You know, when you get a new car, <laughs> you want to show it to your friends, right? Take it for a ride. Get a new outfit, you want to show it to your friends. Get a new house, you want to invite your friends over to see it. And Jesus has been working a long time putting something really cool together, and he's just itching for us to see it. Amen. Welcome home. He says, Father, here are all the ones you've given me. And the Father says, any friend of his, pointing to Jesus, is a friend of mine. Welcome home. We're so glad you're here. Sometime in the midst of all of this, there's going to be a shout that will ring out from one corner somewhere. And we're going to part and make a space for the tallest man among us and his wife, Adam and Eve, to come through to Jesus. And Adam's going to come and meet Jesus face to face again for the first time since just before the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Now here's the interesting thing, folks. As Adam approaches Jesus, he's going to see the scars, but he hasn't heard the story. I think he'll catch on in a hurry that that is what it cost for Jesus to undo what he started at the tree. And the strongest, most perfect specimen of humanity, tall and amazing, will throw himself at the feet of Jesus. Worthy, worthy is the Lamb who was slain as he recognizes the cost to redeem what he messed up. Salvation may be free, but it costs the universe more than it's ever paid for anything else. And as Adam recognizes the cost of our redemption, I think he will weep at Jesus' feet. Remember, tear ducts predate sin. When the Bible says our tears will be wiped away, I believe those will be the tears of sorrow. But we will still shed tears of joy. Jesus will raise Adam up and point him toward the gate of that garden that the last time Adam saw it, and he saw it for 900 plus years, was guarded by an angel and he couldn't go in. He couldn't go home. And Jesus says, let's go home. Amen. 
I believe that garden has been taken up before the flood and it's there preserved in heaven, just waiting for Adam and Eve to come home and bring all of us with them. Beautiful garden. Trees and shrubs and flowers and fruit. Makes the Dow Gardens look like a desert in Phoenix. Makes a mansion look like a shack. A garden home made of living things that never fade or crumble, never need repair or maintenance, never get old and dirty, are always alive and vibrant, fresh and clean. And they're familiar. I think Adam and Eve will see their own handiwork still there in living structure. For 900 years, they couldn't go home. And finally, 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 they get to go home. And now Jesus leads Adam and Eve to the tree of life. And he picks a piece of fruit and hands it to Adam and says, you can eat it now. Immortality works now. We're past sin. We're back home. And Adam eats it and the juice runs out down his chin and down his arm. And it's so good to be home. This is not just home. It's better than home. The familiar sights and sounds and flavors and feelings. All too good to be true. And Adam falls upon Jesus and there's a long hug. And we'll all get our turn for a hug. And then Adam picks up his harp and strikes a chord and we begin to sing, worthy, worthy is the lamb who was slain. And for the first time, we will sing together as a human family. All the unfallen and redeemed in the universe singing together, reverberating through the galaxies, the sea of glass reflecting the glory of God and the city and the angels and the saints. And words fail. The picture is incomplete. I guess we're just going to have to see it for ourselves. But that's what Jesus has for abiders. If we abide now, we will abide then. And we'll get to go home. Truly home. C.S. Lewis puts it this way, Creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for these desires exists. A baby feels hungry. Well, there is such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. There is such a thing as water. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy... The most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If that is so, I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country. Have you noticed that no matter how sweet and good things get at moments in this world, they always leave you with a hunger for more? We're finally going to get to more. God has more in store. Continuing with another quote from C.S. Lewis, at present we are on the wrong side of the door. But all the leaves of the New Testament are rustling with the rumor that it will not always be so. That's some great wording, isn't it? All the leaves of the New Testament are rustling with the rumor that it will not always be so. And finally, in the last page of the last book of the Chronicles of Narnia, he says, the term is over. The holidays have begun. The dream is over. This is the morning. The things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last they were beginning chapter 1 of the great story which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever and ever, and which every chapter is better than the one before. That's what Jesus has for abiders. This is home, real home, better than real, better than home. We're finally going to be back home again. This is the glorious ending for all Jesus' friends. And the only way we'll ever be there is if we are friends with Jesus now. Friends now will be friends then. Abiders now will be abiders then. If we seek friendship daily, we are guaranteed that friendship will go on forever and ever. Amen. Today I want to make an appeal. Sometimes it's important that we make a public commitment. Private commitments are fine, and that's fine if that's where you are. But if you need to make a public statement today, I want to give you three options. Number one, if you need to say today, I am convinced that I've been living a good external Christian life as a behaviorist, attending church, even working and leading in the church, seeking to do right and stay out of trouble but I haven't been spending daily time with Jesus. And I want to publicly state today that I'm shifting gears in my Christian life from behaviorist to relationist. 
I commit myself to seek daily intimate friendship and relationship time with Jesus, to fight the fight of faith, fight the battle where the battle is, keep my eyes fixed on Jesus so he can transform my heart and ask him to produce true obedience from the heart. If the Holy Spirit is convicting that you need to publicly make a statement of that today, then my invitation is going to be for you. Number two, if you need to publicly testify today that this week I have discovered the assurance of eternal life. Remember the story of my grandpa. Been following Jesus all his life, but didn't know he could know. And if you need to say today, I am excited that I have discovered that all my striving to be better isn't going to bring me assurance, but that by simply seeking Jesus day by day, I can have the assurance that when he comes or when I die, it's all going to be okay then I'm going to be talking to you. Number three, there may be somebody here today who has never walked with Jesus or you have strayed into a far country and you know that you need to come home and you want to say, Lord, today I desire to commit my life to you, Jesus. I want to enter that savoring relationship. I want to receive eternal life. I'm not talking of a general recommitment here. I'm being very specific. Someone who has not been walking with Jesus either because they never have or you've been away and you want to come home, then I'm talking to you. If any of you feel any of those three categories, moving from behaviorist to relational, moving from trying hard but not being assured to knowing you have eternal life, or someone here that simply wants to say, I want to receive Jesus today and begin that relationship, I'm talking to you. And if you fit any of those three categories and want to make a public statement today, I'd just like to ask you to get up out of your seat and come down to the front, and I want to pray for you. All right? I'll give you just a moment to respond. Remember, if you choose to make that commitment privately, that is fine. But if you feel you need to say something specific today, I'm inviting you to respond. And just come down here to the front, and we will stand together and pray. Sometimes it's important to take a stand publicly. God bless you. And let's pray. Jesus, you know absolutely every heart in this room. You know who's struggling with what. And you know what's being said in every heart of those that are seated and the heart of those who have come down to the front. And Lord, I want to pray for everyone, but in a special way, I want to pray for those who have felt they needed to step forward in front of their friends and peers and make a statement. You know what they're saying, Lord. You know whether it's receiving assurance, whether it's moving to a relational focus, whether it's accepting you uh, in their lives for the first time or coming home after a long journey away. Jesus, please, for each one that's come down front, write this decision in their hearts, write it in the books of heaven, and let this be a pivotal moment in their Christian life. Let this commitment last and be nurtured through time daily with you. Lord, I thank you that you give us absolute assurance that in you, if we abide now, we will continue abiding forever. So Lord, I pray for everyone here that you will draw us into your presence each morning day by day and that this week together will not be in vain, that we won't go back to business as usual, that we will turn over a new leaf as it were, focusing on you, relationship with you, trusting you with our behavior, and trusting you with our eternity. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.